Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Phil Pucci of Invader Houses. You may also recognize him from playing guitar in the band Modern Moxie or his other projects, Pullover and Surfs. We talked about Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut album. We also talked about finding the inspiration to write and how you would treat your associates if money was on the line. Invader Houses is currently on a little bit of a hiatus on a live show front, but you can still expect new music from Phil in 2023. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and reviews always help. Okay, let's chat with Phil. Hey, Phil, how's it going? I'm good, Josh. Uh, new year, new me. How are you doing? Uh, good. I have not really done anything new. I feel like I'm already like sh- uh, shifting back into the same habits. So, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're is this the what the second now, and uh, I feel like I'm the same person. So, I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah. All right, so we're talking about Third Eye Blind's self-titled album that came out April 8th, 1997. It's their debut album on Electra Records, and it's produced by Eric Valentine. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard this band or this album? Um, So when this album came out, I think I was 10 years old. Uh, and the first time I heard it, I think, was probably on MTV with the Semi-Charmed Life video. Um probably the same way a lot of other people were exposed to this. So yeah, super young. I mean, at that time I was really into just some, you know, I was into like, you know, Matchbox 20, The Wallflowers, uh, Cheryl Crow. Uh, and so that's kind of where I was at when I first saw the, uh, semi-charm life video. And that's kind of what got me into them. I feel like what's interesting when I think back on this band is, that I had a moment with like Wallflowers and I also like came back around to that and I really loved that record. Um, and a lot of the stuff like even like Everclear, I have like fond memories of, but for some reason, like when it came to like going into, I guess like my punk years that I bring up like every episode, for some reason I was just like, no, with this band. Like I was <laughs> just like, I'm not, this isn't for me. Fair. But I'm like, if I stack it up against all the other things during that era, I'm not sure what, why that was you know like i i i guess i'm thinking about like there seems to be like a shift there seemed to be obviously this was like really well regarded in its time this was six times platinum record um but personally i feel like there was like a time frame where this record and this band was almost like a joke and then i think in more recent time frames i feel like there's been a lot more people in my kind of direct friend group that are like no this record's good and that's yes. like where we are and culturally. <laughs> yes. I feel like. it's an amazing yeah. moment culturally because I think maybe two, three years ago, uh, you know, just by virtue of being, you know, in the Charlotte, uh, you know, indie rock scene or what, you know, you know, in the indie rock 
uh, community. Um, on Twitter, a couple of years ago, I started seeing a couple different people, um, you know, a, a couple of different people from like the band Jail Socks mentioned specifically thir- this Third Eye Blind record as like, you know, their, it's like their favorite album. And that blew my mind when I saw it just from this, this random, like this album from when I was 10 years old, that was always kind of like a source of like a little bit of shame for me, like a kind of like a guilty pleasure type of thing. But I mean, I genuinely always loved this album and to see it. And, and, you know, it's kind of like a lot of these young, some of these younger bands, what I love is it's like, uh, it, it's almost like a, when you're choosing your character in a video game and you like, you know, you're a DIY rock band, choose your, uh, you know, what type of guitar you play, choose your 90s like alt rock band that you like decide, you know, that you uh, that you love, like whether that be Third Eye Blind or, you know, Nirvana or Oasis. And I, I think that shit is so funny and amazing just because when I was coming up, it was kind of the same thing, but it was like, choose your, you know, classic rock band. Like, you know, yeah. were you a Led yeah. Zeppelin person? Were you, you know, so to see this band kind of come up in, in the conversations now, I think is amazing. And I, you know, I'm here for it. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I kind of, I liked how you put it with the uh, kind of picking your character in like Tony Hawk pro skater, because yeah. I always kind of bring up the thing of like, there's a lot of times where it's like, I have to make two choices. This is like the example that I make a lot where it's like with Wilco and Sunbolt. For some reason, I just picked Sunbolt. Like, and I just, that was my, that was, that was me for many years. Sure. You know? It's like, you just pick a lane and you're just like, I'm a, even with like a bass, I'm like, I'm a jazz bass guy. And then people are like, you know, you could do this with, uh, you know, P-Bass. And I'm just like, no, nah, I'm a jazz bass <laughs> So it's like, no matter what, if it even made more sense that I probably should have been a P-Bass guy, I just chose. And it just made yeah. you like the jazz bass is even more every time somebody was like, well, it makes more sense for you to play a precision bass. You're like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've always kind of like I've always kind of been on I you know straddled the the line on all these kind of binary choices like are you Beatles or are you Rolling Stones I'm like I like them both uh you know when Third Eye Blind when Third Eye Blind record was huge so was the first Matchbox 20 album and you know they're kind of both sides of the same coin they're just like cheesy you know 90s alt rock uh and I like them both <laughs> I I loved them Yeah I I feel like culturally like third eye blind is kind of is definitely winning that if there's a conversation of matchbox 20 versus third eye blind feels like in this moment like third eye blind is winning like i i'm wondering when or if maybe it has come back around to matchbox 20 i'm just too old or too out of the conversation now well yeah matchbox the, rob thomas and you know matchbox 20 they kind of they they kept they kept the relevancy for longer, you know, with, you know, Rob Thomas had the, the Carlos Santana song and he had his own hits that were playing on the radio. I feel like up until maybe five, 10 years ago. So, and he just went more, more and more middle of the road with each, you know, successive release, whereas third eye blind kept going, but they, they fell off on relevancy super quick. So I think, uh, they've got like a sort of a Weezer thing going on where it's like, yeah, some of their new hour albums, you can kind of just, you know, you can disregard them if you want to. They're just, they're, they're there. But those first one or the first two are like amazing and they'll always have that. Um, yeah. 
And I don't know if Matchbox 20, yeah, I don't know if that 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 first album kind of, uh, I don't know if that holds up as well. I haven't really. <laughs> yeah, but I wonder if in a way that it's like, if with Matchbox 20, it's it's almost like the memification of Rob Thomas's, in a way, almost like made them loom larger, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know, it starts feeling like it's like dissecting the shrek soundtrack like, you know it's like i don't know how we're supposed to talk about it like it's you know but so yeah so but third eye blind is the one we're talking about today um but but the two yeah, of them so, the two of them hated each other though stephen jenkins oh and Rob so there Thomas. actually was i didn't know that there actually was yeah um there's a book by stephen hyden called your favorite band is killing me i believe is the title mm-hmm. and there's it's all about like blur versus oasis like like or it's not the whole thing is just about rock rivalries so there'll be like one chapter in there's like a, even a chapter on kanye west versus taylor swift like just those perceived kind of things that's what the whole book is about so i didn't know that there was actually a rivalry between the two or if it was just sort of even a more like <laughs> existential pick where you're just like I'm holding two CDs i guess i'm now a third eye blind guy because a lot of times that's what the choice was for me it was like I had the money for one album. So then I think back, then I almost like made that my identity, but it's just the thing I chose in that moment if I were to really think about it. Oh, sure. And then I'm just like, then I just whatever guy, you know, just Ramones guy, just because that's the CD I had, you know. So, so yeah, but thinking about like Third Eye Blind, do you feel like when you were, so when the record after this came out, um, blue actually i guess even backing up from that (laughs) thinking about i want to get there but so with this first album when it came out like how did that feel to you outside of like mtv did you go out and like buy the cd i definitely went out and bought the cd uh i mean there were a lot of singles off of this album i don't don't know where in the timeline i had decided i was going to buy it but you know between semi-charm life jumper how's it going to be um you know these are all like amazing like rock singles and at some point i bought the album and around that same time uh i started it was when i started playing guitar so you know i'm i don't want to get too deep you know i don't want to get too in the in the um in the rabbit hole of like guitar nerddom kind of talk here but um as a guitar player uh so my love for the third eye blind album is so much of the perspective of somebody who is like also discovering guitar because this, the album to me is like one of the best modern guitar albums, uh, you know, that's out there. Uh, the guitar, the lead guitar player on this album is a guy named Kevin Cadigan, uh, super influential to me, you know, it's boundless. Uh, the influence he had on me and the guitar parts on this album are so, uh, lush and like full and um, that took me by surprise especially after hearing a couple of the singles that were kind of like you know um, your kind of singer-songwriter type of songs like uh, How's It Gonna Be and even Semi-Term Life um, for you know for those of you who've ever picked up a guitar it's just got a G, a C and a D chord in it, and that's the whole song so um, but then there's these other songs that are just like in these alternate tunings on the guitar uh, so from from the get-go, as a kid who's just picking up guitar for the first time, I was al- al- already learning how to tune my guitar in these alternate tunings, which is amazing. And that's kind of what I see going on now with like, you know, the, the whole emo revival thing. 
Um, so it's it's fantastic. So my my love for this album is like that of like a you know guitar player, uh, guitar player's love for an album. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I I've noticed the same thing with talking with uh, Neil, the guitarist, and Late Bloomer. Like he's he's like a huge fan of this album specifically, and this band. I think he swears like you know like the next album and then the one even potentially after that like oh there's you know good songs there like mm-hmm. he goes pretty deep and i feel like since like 2020 i've definitely like come around to this album a lot more than i ever had in the past like even on like the kind of first version of uh of of spinning out there was an episode on this album but i i'll say i don't remember anything i said to that specific guest so we're doing it again <laughs> um you know and so I think like in my head, like I, before that point, it was kind of hard to avoid. I mean, it's like, I had always heard the songs, the singles of this album, but like, I don't know if I had ever sat down pre 2020 and really tried to like take it in as an album. I know before that point, there were plenty of times in like the van or on trips. Like I was, I feel like I would have been more prone to be like, sure, you can put it on. You know, like yeah. I was like accosted by this album, you know, <laughs> um, but, but it always like went down. It wasn't like a hard record to listen to. It just was like, I don't know. I'm just talking about like being kind of like a dickhead, you know, <laughs> uh, but like what I'm thinking too about is like what I was mentioning earlier is that when you got, since you were such a big fan of this, this album, when the second album came around, like, do you feel like you remember like what your thoughts on it? I guess people call it blue. Yeah, it's uh yeah, that second album Blue. I loved it when it came out. You know, it only came out I want to say like 2 years later, so you know, I was still young as shit. I was like whatever, 12 years old, 13 years old. Um and I loved it. I remember I had it uh, like the stereo in my room with the, you know, 6 CD changer thing. I had uh that album as like my, my wake up album uh, mm-hmm. that whole year at school. Um, I loved the first single off of it called anything, which is just kind of like, uh, at the time when I was 13, I was like, this is punk rock, baby. Um, it's just like this real, you know, it's like a minute and a half long, kind of just fast paced. It just kind of came out of left field from this band that was known for kind of their, you know, sing songy type, uh, you know, like how's it going to be type songs. But, um, the big single off of this, the second album, I think was never let you go. Uh, which, you know, around that same time, I remember I was listening to like a lot of Led Zeppelin. So I was just like, okay, never let you go. has got sick, you know, guitar riff. Um, and the second album had the same guitarist on it, Kevin Cadigan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to talk about the two eras in my mind of Third Eye Blind, the first being the Kevin Cadigan era where he's playing lead guitar on the, and he also legitimately like wrote probably at least half of the songs on that first album and second album. Um, so there's that era. And then there's just whatever comes after everything after that, where he was no longer the lead guitar player. They kicked him out highly, you know, kind of, uh, talked about situation where they just left him. They abandoned him after a tour date and then they had a new guitar player the next day when they played on um the tonight show with jay leno so yeah so these are the two areas and kevin cadigan it's if you if you need any kind of evidence like what his influence on their music was i mean you can listen to the first two albums and then you put on the third album um out of the vein which i agree with neil 
uh, there are a few good songs on that album, but if just press play on that first song and you're like, oh, this is a different band. It's they just they changed over. Um, mm. So if you're thinking back on it now, you, it is that big of like a I guess jump. <laughs> we'll say jump but, or fall. I guess whatever kind of phrase we want to use for that kind of from Kevin or post Kevin and with Kevin. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And. I know that there's story behind it, and I feel like it would be what uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it because I know that it goes pretty deep with, like, just the whole ins and outs of it. I, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what I believe in it, or like, kind of what is sort of a thing to just paint a guy. Sure. He he always seems like, and I don't know if he minds, you know, but it always seems like he's like a uh, comfortable villain. You know, Stephen, Stephen Jenkins. Jenkins. Oh, yeah, I, and I don't. Yeah. It feels like in a way, it's like he's. Because it, it's like even the way he talks online, it's like this guy. I think he might like being a heel, you know. It's like wrestling term, like just like <laughs> I think he just likes being shit on it. Well, I know that's probably not true, like you know. But it's like it's like maybe it's like he knows he made that bad, and this is all me just assuming a whole lot about it. But you know, I I guess like could you explain like what some of the context of like the story with Kevin leaving and then some of the publishing stuff that kind of went into, do you know about that? Well, I do. I probably used to know more than I remember now because, uh, so I should, I should also, um, you know, full disclosure, I ran, uh, a third eye blind fan website, um, (laughs) from like, I guess around the time I was in a freshman or something in high school, uh, that was at geo cities website that, like legitimately it got like a decent amount of traffic so i you know safe to say i was i was i was following what this band was doing so um around the time of the whole you know the, the them kicking out kevin uh and then the yeah the lawsuits that came right thereafter um i mean i know that essentially what it boils down to was that um when they started the band, I mean, I, I think they, they all were pretty, you know, especially Stephen Jenkins were, were like, yeah, we are going to be a huge band. And, you know, yeah. they, they drew up uh, terms. And I guess uh, that somewhere along the way, I think um, Stephen Jenkins sort of assumed legally full control of the band. Um, and there, there's some sort of, you know, there, there's, there's a contract out there that states as much that he is, he owns a hundred percent of the, of third eye blind, the business. Um, but then I don't know what that means. I, you know, maybe somebody who, who's more familiar with this type of thing, like copyright law, I don't know what that means for the songwriting royalties and publishing and stuff like that. But I think that's the, that was the crux of the lawsuit against third eye blind that Kevin filed after he was kicked out was that he, he co-wrote all of the songs on the first two albums, or at least most of them. Um, Mm -hmm. so and I know that they're, I believe that they settled out of court. So I think that he was in some way, you know, taken care of. But um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of what that was all about. Yeah. Cause looking at the track listing of, you know, the first album, uh, the ones that were only credited to Jenkins were four tracks out of the 14. And so that's Semi Charm Life, Jumper, I Want You, and Motorcycle Drive By are soul. Jenkins. So the ten other tracks are co-writes, you know. So sure. I'm not sure like what their roles would divvying things up, but I guess if in a sense that 
if on a, the third album you can hear such a difference, you know, then it would stand to reason quite a bit is the answer. I would, I would hope so. Yeah. You know, I hope, I hope the man got paid. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I hope he did. Yeah. I I think what gets to be an interesting thing. And I guess like, it sounds like I'm, uh, you know, I guess simping is the only thing (laughs) for Stephen Jenkins is the only (laughs) thing I can think of is that I feel like sometimes whenever you're the creative person in a band and like, you know, all of my bands have multiple creative people. So, if any of you are listening, I'm not talking about you. But sometimes it's like as a creative person who is not primarily a guitarist, I think sometimes it's complicated. Like people assume other people might write something. So I know personally, sometimes I can get a little <laughs> perturbed, <laughs> you know, that like potentially someone just thinks it's like, you know, all someone else, you know? And so it's like I wouldn't want, I'm saying that because it's like I don't know how much of a you know hand like Jenkins has and then so I'm assuming even to think because it, it seems really easy to just think of Stephen Jenkins as like the villain in all of this and sure you know but like there's the other thing that I think of is like maybe it truly is this guy's band <laughs> and it's like we you know so I, I don't know it's like such a thought experiment but sometimes I feel like sensitive to it and I am wondering if in a way you feel sensitive to it of like being a person that, you know, has been like a primary songwriter in your bands, you know? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I mean, in most of the bands that I've been in, I might have been like the primary songwriter, but that has definitely meant different things. And um, in most cases, uh, this every song that I've put out with a band that maybe I came up with the initial idea for the song. If it had just been me all along the way, directing people to play exact certain things that I, you know, that I had in mind, then the songs would have turned out so much differently rather than if it was, you know, everyone else in the group, just kind of adding their own thing, Mm -hmm. uh, building upon whatever I come up with. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, if, if it ever came time to like decide who owns what percentage of the songs I put out, which is so beyond, you know, the scope, <laughs> of, <laughs> uh, but you know, if, if I ever got a, a, a hit song on MTV, um, then yeah, I, it, it would only make sense for me to do a equal percentage, you know, just unless there was some situation where I was like directing a band, like to do exact things, which I don't. I, I, I've only done here and there, like usually in band situations, people just kind of do their thing, right? Um, and yeah. songwriter yeah, pers- might have some notes, but... Yeah, personally, I feel like it's always been like, when the conversation comes up, because it's like, with like putting out a record on a, a record label, uh, even, you know, if being smaller, it's not to the scale of Third Eye Blind, it still had to be something that you thought about. Right. You know, and so we made the decision pretty early on and late bloomer that it was like, I mean, I'm kind of the same as you. It's like, I just, it's not really going to be a conversation, but if it were, yeah, then we're just splitting everything equally. Sure. You know, because it's like the things that each person contributes in a way, like it's hard to imagine it being different if you took one person out. Right. You know, like it. So, so in my case, you know, but, but in a sense it was like, if I truly, because I, I do know bands where it's like truly the person essentially dictates everything and not even in like a 
dictator sense, you know, I, I kind of sympathize with it, that it's like you, this is actually your thing. Right. And then, so if other people down the line are like, well, you know, I did this and it's like kind of in a way where I, I wonder if Stephen Jenkins sometimes is like, I could have gotten anyone to just play a reverby guitar, <laughs> you know? And like, I don't think it's true given the context of this record, but I, I would assume that, you know, some nights you probably think that way <laughs> if you're someone like him, you know? I think, I, don't know. I think Stephen Jenkins definitely one day decided, said to himself, or, you know, one day Stephen Jenkins decided, yeah, I can get anyone to play a reverby guitar. And then he saw that through and then we can kind of see the results of that decision that he made. But um, yeah, I mean, and, and one of the songs he mentioned on the self-title album uh, that only is credited to Stephen Jenkins, which is Jumper, uh, that's crazy to me because, yeah, at the core of that song, you know, it's this, you know, it's, like a, it's a very cheeseball kind of song, but it is like a, at the same time a nice sentiment about, you know, a, a, friend, a friend of a friend's suicide. Um, but it's just a few simple guitar chords, real nice melody, but then the drums are like super distinct. There's this like marching band beat that not any, you know, not anyone would just come up with. Um, the bass line is amazing. It's like the do, 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 super cool. And then the guitar solo, Stephen Jenkins did not write that guitar solo. Let's put it that way. The guitar solo is super epic and uh i mean the song wouldn't be nearly as good without the other 75 percent you know of the band so i could see where he's why he might have they might have only given him songwriting credit but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me ultimately yeah i taken in a different direction i mean this is totally a different thing it's really just honestly something that was in on my head today um one of my friends said uh online like uh, Bob Dylan and his whole uh, catalog never had a song as strong as, uh, you know, One Headlight by <laughs> Wallflowers. And I was just like, I understand what you're doing. And, you know, you know, but I'm like, I'm I was just thinking of the idea. And then uh, when I talked to him about it, he was like, well, if you think about any song that anyone has covered by Bob Dylan, it's always a better song. And I was like, dude, I don't I don't know. You know, it's like it's like. This idea and the kind of the core idea where I think it goes back to Third Eye Blind is like, what is the core of a song sometimes? You know, it's like if you think about Bob right. Dylan doing all, you know, along the Watchtower, mm-hmm. it's like some someone's idea, like, <laughs> like when you think about like knocking on Heaven's Door, all that stuff, and people were like, I preferred that version. Yeah. You're like, you wouldn't have your version if it wasn't for the original author. Right. And so I think about that in terms of a Stephen Jenkins. I really, then I really am like, I'm going to get like money from Stephen Jenkins at the end of this. Uh, <laughs> like if I think about it, it's like it, you built on a good idea and you made it better, but it wouldn't exist if it weren't for once again, Bob Dylan. I feel like he's just a better example here than using Stephen Jenkins. Right. You right. know? So I'm like, you do have to give credit to someone like that. And I know you're not arguing against me, but it's it's just an idea that I've had in my head. Like I've had a friend be like, I think, you know, Johnny Cash's version of Sunday Morning Coming Down is better than Chris Christopherson. But sure. I'm like, you heard the version and you already knew what you could do differently. So, but you wouldn't have been able to, you didn't write that song. 
Right. You know, so so it's like when I think of even that, it's like, I guess back to like Jumper, it's like, I guess it's a ship of Theseus kind of conversation of like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it gets so existential. It's like, what what is the core of the song? And that's usually where I'm just like, I got to, you know, I got to get out, out of this because thinking about like what role someone plays and if they made it better, you wouldn't know unless you heard the other version and the other version doesn't exist. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the the role of like, or, you know, the the process of crediting songwriters has definitely changed a lot in the last five, 10 years, too, where obviously we're seeing like, you know, pop hits have like upwards of 10, 20, 30 songwriters on it. And a songwriter will be credited on a song for just like, you know, uh, it's like a little boop that they did uh, that the song was passed their way and they added Bloop, and then they're credited as a songwriter. Um, so it's kind of like a, you know, it's 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 almost where do you want to draw the line um, as far as songwriting stuff goes? Because you could you could get real in depth with it. I mean, who was it? Um, Olivia Rodrigo just had to credit uh, Paramore, Haley Williams, just not necessarily for writing her. Uh, what was it? Uh, Good for you. But just yeah. because good for you kind of sounds a little like a Paramore song. Um, so they were like, let's just go ahead and credit Paramore. So, you know, just because it kind of sounds a little bit, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. Wasn't it like uh, Sam Smith had to like uh, credit Tom Petty, you know, uh, oh, for I like a know. song, I you know, that was like, I think it was like one of the songs kind of sounded like I won't back down. Or oh. something like that. You know, I don't know what song it was, but it was something like that where it was yes. like, the chord structure and then it's like you know there was something as uh so there's a song uh by this guy named king curtis um and i can't think of the song name but whatever song it is it sounds just like chicken fried by zach brown band oh and, nice <laughs> you know and it's like it's crazy so <laughs> but i don't i i like looked online like sarah brought it up and she was like this like i was playing the king curtis song and she was like, is this chicken fried by Zach Brown band? And I was like, what? You know, and then then we listened to both like back to back. And I was like, someone has to have like noticed this. <laughs> I think the song's called Games People Play by okay. King Curtis. And listen to both of them side by side. And it just sounds like chicken fried. But no one, it's not been mentioned online at all. Dang. But it's crazy. And it's like, but I'm like, that happens so much in songs. Yeah. You know, it's like. Zach Brown ever heard Chicken Fried or fucking Games People Play by King Curtis. It's like there's probably another song that sounds just like it. Sure. You think, uh, I guess uh, Stephen Jenkins didn't credit uh, uh, Velvet Underground for that do, 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 one with the do, 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 do. Yeah, that, that seems to be sometimes where the conversations go. It's like if you really kind of start pulling out that thread, yeah. It will never end. Yeah, like, it's not. <laughs> that's that's where it gets really complicated. I guess even with the thing of like, what role did a bass player do to elevate the song? It's like, I guess when it comes down to it, it's like when they were in the studio that day uh, or whatever arrangement they had on a piece of paper, it's like you were the bass player. And in that moment, you were fine with it. You know, like there there was a there's a documentary where the uh, – the guitar player, um, I think he ended up being the guy in fil that started Filter. Um, there's this documentary where he was like, 
I don't make enough money. I have to deliver pizzas when I'm not on tour with Nine Inch Nails. Uh, and then he was like, can I get a raise? Because they were like, you can't deliver pizzas when you're not on the road. Like, it's not, it looks bad. <laughs> and they were, he was like, I don't make enough money. And he, they were like, okay, what can we do? And he was like, can I get a raise? And then, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails dude was like, you know, Trent Reznor was like, if you want more money, start your own band. You know, and it's like, and then he was like, I could, he was like, I was pissed at Trent Reznor for telling me that. And then eventually I just started my own band and realized he was right. And I was like, I don't know if that's the lesson you should have taken from that. <laughs> you yeah, know? why doesn't Trent Reznor want, that's like such a, <laughs> don't you want, you know, people to think that you're, uh, yeah. you can relate to the working class? Come on. <laughs> I, and it's like, it's like, that's the story. It's, it's, uh, What's that guy's name? Something Patrick. It's uh, T1000's brother is the guy from Filter. The guy from Filter, uh, okay. Yeah, his, his brother is T1000. Uh, so, uh, but like, I and I don't know if that's what Trent Reznor feels like anymore. And also, um, the Patrick guy from uh, whatever his name is from Filter, this could also be a story that he's essentially made up. You know, <laughs> like it's, yes. it's almost like the, re, you know, it's like that's not really how it went down. So, sure. I don't know. Another thing I was thinking about, it kind of <laughs> ties into this. I saw a video about this CEO that gave everyone like, uh, just gives everyone like 70000 a year. And this was like a TikTok video or something. And it was like, then all the news were like, your company is going to fall apart. You know, like it's not going to work. You can't just pay your workers a good wage. You know? <laughs> and he kept taking like pay cuts. This was like a, it's almost like a PayPal thing. They'd like take... They take payments. That's all I know that the okay. company does. Um, and he was like, no, I think it'll work. And then he was like, it was like six years later. He goes, people told me they were able to buy a house. They were able to like pay down their debt and all that stuff like that. Um, and all that just, it almost also makes me think of Third Eye Blind or kind of rock bands from this era is they really were really cutthroat. <laughs> like they were like, it was like they were sitting on, it feels like a heist movie where there's five guys and they did the heist. By the end of it, there's only one guy because the the other guy has to like kill everybody else. Sure, you know, <laughs> because he's like, this is my pile of yes, is what everyone gets to be like. It's I guess it's like Lord of the Rings, or we could keep thinking. It's like sure, I have to be the last one standing because if not, you're gonna take my money. And yeah. I mean, in in the late '90s, so we're still deep in the era of record companies just forking over huge amounts of cash to bands, sometimes before they've really put out anything. Um, and I think Throw Up Blind is one of those cases. They were signed to a major label before before this record came out. Um, and I think that's partly because of some of the projects that they were uh, involved with before. Steven had a like a short little career as a rapper before this. He was half yeah. of a, du a rap duo called Puck and Natty. Um, and that's where semi-term life came from because it's kind of like a rap song. So they were they knew that they this this was gonna go something. They might have not known that it was gonna go six times platinum, but they knew it was doing something. So imagine, you know, you start a business or a band, a you know, a a, a band business band, and yeah. um, you know that you're probably gonna be talking about huge amounts of money. I mean. Just imagine what types of, you know, things you need to think about, what conversations need to be had about that, that you or I don't really, you know, have a, a, a grasp on. Um, 
but that bands, especially in the nineties, uh, the, this type of thing just kind of happened, um, where the record company was already giving you whatever it was, half a million dollars. Uh, so it's kind of crazy. It's funny too. when um, because when I think about this, the same way I believe you do, it's like my default is kind of like, this is never going to happen to me. And then I'm like, and if it were, I would be fine to kind of bring us all up, you know, is how I would see it. Like, it's like, if there's more money on the table because of something we did, that's good for all of us. Mm-hmm. I think, But I've also never been given that much money. Right. <laughs> um, I think when this third, the, the, when the self-titled, uh, third blind record came out, I think Steven Jenkins was already like 33, 35, something like that, which mm-hmm. is also kind of kooky to think about. Um, this, I don't, I mean, I don't feel like you, I feel like it's a once in a blue moon thing where a breakout musician appears and they're, you know, already 30 years old or over. That's just like, that's crazy. to yeah, me. Yeah. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, one thing I realized, uh, the other day was Andy Summers. I believe he just had a birthday. They got the guitarist from the police. Okay. Um, he is 80 now. Like- and so I did the math and that means he was like, 36 okay. by the time like he joined uh the police because he's not the original guitarist right and like he was really early on though mm-hmm. um and so they he was in this other band called soft machine that like toured with like Jimi hendrix and stuff yeah like then andy summers so like think about what's funny is i feel like even in my mind when i think about Jimi hendrix to the police there's like such a big time frame difference but we're talking about like six years <laughs> Yeah. You know? Oh, and right. it's really interesting to like think about like people's lives kind of before one point to the other. Sure. So it's like, you know, it's like by the time Andy, you don't hear a lot of those stories though. Like you were saying, like Stephen Jenkins or Andy Summers or, you know, Greg Ginn from Black Black Flag, which still isn't a guy that made a bunch of money, <laughs> but it's like these people that are like over thirty becoming, you know, like a big name. You know, uh, the only one I, other one I can think of is like the the guy from Fear. But we're still talking about a guy that didn't make millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so there, there's not many is the point. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, probably one or two of the American Idols were over 30, but I don't know. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it seems like it sometimes happens to like blues guys. Yeah. But they're like They smoked the right amount of cigarettes to finally get their voice to that <laughs> perfect. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're not usually. And it's like, I don't know how old like Tom Waits was. You yeah. Know, and, you know, I think like. Some of that stuff ends up being like such a, it's like Leonard Cohen. I, I don't know really what you would quantify as like their big break because what's funny too in those situations of those stories, people will go like, you know, they didn't break it big until blank. Right. Uh, but then I'm like, but I can see that this person made 10 other albums before that. Right. right. And they, their money that they were making before they made it big in quotes, uh, I would have been happy with oh sure so so it's like we're not even like talking on the same like scale uh with that and they kind of back to what, what i was kind of mentioning is like i've never had that thing dangling in front of me and i'd like to think that i would make the right decision sure <laughs> and based on kind of everything that i've like suffered on the road and all the times i've slept right next to cat poop <laughs> you know that i would not want to cut someone out but <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's such a hard thing. It's it's almost like I'm at a point now where I'm like, 
I can't begrudge someone for it in a way. Right. It, you know, but it's like, I, I would say that you shouldn't do that. Right. But, you know. Begrudge someone for the decisions that they made when there was like, you know, millions of dollars on the line. It's like, uh, um, that's a tough one. <clears throat> uh, and, so to me, like the, the sort of villain aspect of Stephen Jenkins amazing i love it i'm here i've always been here for it such um, a good story yes um <laughs> and you know if you ask me the so what kind of defined that f- first era of third eye blind was this sort of duality of stephen jenkins the like conventionally beautiful you know man who's who was maybe 35 but he, he looked like he was 25 uh just like a total kind of you know he put on this real sneering kind of like asshole i think you know i guess like and maybe in his mind it was like punk rock kind of ethos tough interview um kind of talked down to everyone around him but like in this way that you just couldn't like or at least a lot of people like myself just couldn't deny um Mm. because he also wrote amazing amazing lyrics uh that just I, they, they just told these great stories that the, the, the imagery was great. So the, the duality of Stephen Jenkins, the, the you know, the, the sneering singer songwriter and then Kevin Cadigan, the sort of like um, the quiet sort of force, the like mm-hmm. the lush, the sort of, you know, the, the total counterpoint um, to, to Stephen. So just the lush guitar parts that were super like beautiful. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there were like heavy riffs and stuff like that song. Graduate is a great Kevin Cadigan riff. Um, and then on the next record, a thousand July's is kind of almost the same song as graduate, just a great, uh, you know, guitar riff song, but the two of them together, uh, just made for these two great albums. And, when you kind of took the two, when they, when the two of them split, uh, some of those third eye blind songs after that were pretty good. Um, but a lot of them really weren't. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, Kevin Cadigan, again, huge influence on me. I, I, I love the dude, but, um, his, his, he put out a couple of records on his own after third eye blind and, you know, they're good guitar albums, but it's missing that something, you know, it, it, it's, it's just missing that kind of other side. So, um, that's kind of the beauty of it for me on that yeah. first record. Yeah. It's interesting to think of that kind of thing. Like I think about those, like any kind of band that, you know, <laughs> like any kind of band that had that kind of split at this point, I'm like, y'all are huge bands like you could probably get like two separate buses <laughs> like for the love of money can you not figure things out right you know? it's like queen figured it out with you know fed uh freddie mercury they they knew they couldn't do it without each other they, they couldn't do it without the other you know yeah 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 it's just like i don't know i guess it's like do you think then in that regard it's probably so it's like so long after the point if for somehow Stephen Jenkins and Kevin got back together do you think it's possible that they could write a good album I I I think yeah maybe that's kind of that's what's sad is like you know they never will like there's no universe I mean I, I I don't know when the last time Brian Wilson and Mike Love got together I think they might have toured but from a like in a songwriting sense it's probably been decades but you know 
if the two of them were put in a room, I, I've been following them both enough to know that I think they still have a little bit of that kind of like that. Um, I don't know what the word is for when you can write good songs. <laughs> um, they still have it in them, I think. Uh, it is like an interesting, like uh, the like Virgin versus Chad kind of thing. Like it's like, you know, it's like I want someone like just the way I am. I feel like I want someone like Kevin to not need Steven. Right. But when I think about the just the history of rock and roll, I'm like, unfortunately, I think a Kevin needs a Steven and a Steven needs a Kevin. Sure. But then there's, you know, when, when the when the Beatles broke up and they all had to give, the, they all had to tell everybody, like, listen, it's over. Like, you can go listen to the old records if you want to, if you want to listen to the Beatles. There's all these songs out there. Go listen to them. Now we're doing our own thing. Please stop, you know, <laughs> please stop uh, speculating as to this or that. It's kind of like you got the records. They're there. But this is over. Um, yeah. But, you know, if we're just the... Uh, uh, um, hypothesizing here i do think the two of them could make some fire yeah well, but what's interesting i guess using the beatles which is probably the hardest example to kind of use because <laughs> it's just like such a crazy test case i do think that when i'm more prone i'm more prone to put on someone's solo album than anything beatles related sure you know that's my lingering kind of like just dickhead beatles anti-beatles thing that i'm kind of past but like <laughs> I am more prone to put on George Harrison than I am like anything Beatles. And in the same way, like Paul McCartney or wings, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's weird. They're probably not the good example because they also do have good solo stuff. They really do. Yeah. The other, you know, it, it's such a strong thing. Right. Um, so I can't think of any examples of, you know, there's probably tons of people that kind of went past a band and sort of like proved that band wrong. Right. Right. Um, just the record itself, you know, all the tangents that we went on. Um, if you were to, and this may be more than one song, but if you had to cut one song from the album, what do you think you would cut? Um, I would probably cut the song Burning Man. Um, it's it's a fine song. I, re I truly don't think there's any bad songs on this album. That's the thing. Um, but Burning Man is definitely sometimes a skip for me. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, it's a kind of like a silly song. Um, and it doesn't really hit the emotional kind of marks that a lot of the other songs hit. Um, so yeah, I could, I could see myself taking that one off. If you asked me when I first got in the album, when I was whatever, 11 years old, I would have taken off the song, uh, I want you, which is a little bit kind of too horny, uh, for mm -hmm. 11 year old me, but, um, not for 36 year old me. It It's, I, I like it now. It does. I do kind of laugh at it thinking of it because there, there was like this thing in like the, in run, Ronnie run, the Mr. Show movie, uh, where they kind of have like an R and B group. It almost seems like a little too like fake R and B yeah. to me. Cause there's the part where he's like, I do you, do you, do you, do you. It almost sounds yeah. like somebody trying to do like a boys to men or something, uh -huh. you know, like, or whatever those, there were a bunch of bands that had like numbers in their name that, you know, all for one or something yes. like that. Um, like his version of like all for one, but I don't mind it. <laughs> yeah. So the third, you know. I think the third verse in the song is like literally like, post coital it's just like it's like there's they have sex in the song and then the third verse is just like this whispered kind of like post coital it is so horny it's crazy <laughs> yeah um uh, but i guess in that regard too uh thinking about like songs to cut 
So if you're saying like you wouldn't cut anything, do you feel like this album needs to be 57 minutes? Long? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. this, so this is, you know, <laughs> this is like peak CD era, you know? So yeah. it's like, if you want to put 14 songs on an album, let's go ahead and do it. Cause the CD fits 80 baby. So like, put, go ahead and put it all on there. If any of the songs are bad, take them off, but they did that. I think there's like three, four songs that mm-hmm. came out as B sides from this era. And I, they're also great songs. Um, one of the, uh, there's a song ca- called Tattoo of the Sun, which is fantastic. They re-recorded it for a later album. It's terrible, but, um, yeah, th- I, you could, you could maybe take away like one or two of these songs and it would still be a, a phenomenal album, but I don't think you need to do that. And you can't really say that about a lot of 14 song albums. Yeah. I mean, I, I said that as the experiment, but now I'm trying to think which ones I would cut and I don't. I don't really know. Uh, so I guess it's it's like it feels to me like in the com in the era that we in, are in now, I feel like most albums don't really go over 40 minutes. And yeah. so there's even some that I've seen that are like major label albums that are like 25 minutes. Oh sure. And so usually I'm like I don't know if any artist needs to go over 35 minutes in a modern era. For sure. You know? Espe- I mean, um, especially with yeah. with vinyl being like kind of like the biggest kind of physical release thing now over CDs. It's like that's, I guess, a little bit of a concern again that the running length, whereas in whatever 1997, it was like it doesn't matter how long you make it. If we have to put two CDs in the package, we will, but that's easy. Um, yeah. So... It's just like, yeah, do you think though, if you're thinking of the whole album though, if you were to, uh, just a thought experiment, would you put all of the songs, all the singles at the, at the front of the album? Um, that, I mean, sure. Like it kind of, uh, define that's, it's, it's sort of like classic in that way where it's like all the singles are at the, at the top. Um, and then the, the deep cuts, are the deep cuts and um the singles are great and it's like if you're if you are i don't know if, if you listen to if you ever listen to it on vinyl it is kind of crazy how like wildly different the second half is um and that's i mean the second half of the album is definitely like the singles are fine they're they're good songs but the second half of the record is really what makes it stand the test of time um and also the opening track, "Losing a Whole Year," I think was put out as a single, but it's not really. It was not like it wasn't a hit. So that song, and then all the second half songs, uh, like the background, is my favorite favorite song on the album. Um, and "Motorcycle Drive By," "God of Wine," uh, they're these like super emotionally resonant kind of. Uh, you know, some of them are kind of on the longer side. That's that. That's really what makes the album for me and the kind of the, the side a side B thing is really like prominent on this album, which is really cool. I mean, it didn't have to be that way because it came out on CD, but it's mm-hmm. just the sequencing is pretty interesting in that way. Yeah. I think it's usually when I'm listening to this album, I feel like I perk up more on the last half, Yeah, but I think it's like, it's just, you've heard those songs so many times. It's like, you know, it's uh, it's just like thinking about like inner Sandman. It's like, what kind of relationship can you have with that Metallica song? Yeah. Because you've heard it. Like, you know, it smells like teen spirit, like these kind of things. Like it's, it's kind of hard. It's like, you know, even like when I feel like, uh, I hear a lot of people be like, uh, that Paul McCartney, uh, you know, Christmas time song. Yes. I think it's a good song. 
Sure. You often have to hear it too many times in a season, and then you're like, I hate that song. Oh, yeah. But the first time I hear it every year, you know, even probably the fifth time I've heard it, mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck yeah, the song rules. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then, like, you have to hear it, like, if you, especially if you work in retail, you know, like, you have to hear it 30,000 more times. Yes. And so I understand the thing, but it's like, but it in itself isn't a bad song. Like, you know, Semi Charm Life isn't, you just heard it like, at every like hockey event or something, you know? right? I mean, forever, everywhere, everything, everywhere. Like it's just you can't escape it. Right, right. So if I'm listening to the album, any of those singles, I might listen to or I might skip. But it's kind of you know they're they're great songs. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the songs that are have that were not overplayed to death that really sell it for me. So if you had to pick just like one song that you would listen to. What would you think it would be? I guess, I guess you mentioned uh, the background. Do you think that would be the song? Easy, yeah. Background. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's yeah. That's that's my favorite favorite Third Eye Blind song. It's so good. Yeah, and and I guess like, did you have like specific notes about like any of the songs that you wanted to mention? Like thinking of the album as a whole. Um, I don't have anything you know about any particular song. Um, no, not really. Uh, it's all you know. As far as far as that going back to that latter half of the album thing, I mean, it it's almost like there's this like Lord of the Rings two or whatever things thing going on with this album where like maybe the the last three or four songs all could have been epic last songs on an album, so they just put them all at the end and they're <laughs> all like, uh, so the background uh, with that real beautiful uh, guitar outro, like the song is done, it's fade. You can even hear it fading out but then it fades back in with this guitar part that has nothing to do with the rest of the song um and it's gorgeous that wouldn't what a closing that would be but then you've got motorcycle drive-by i might be getting the sequencing wrong here no you're right motorcycle drive-by uh super you know super emotional at the end of the song he's just going out surfing by himself but he feels so alone but so alive like come on great ending right there and then uh was is it god of wine next yeah, God of Wine about his. Uh, I, I think he wrote that song about his mother struggling with alcohol addiction, and that the ending of. I mean, I guess that is the last song on the album. Um, and you could have put any of the three of those as the last one, and it's like perfect, perfect ending. So they just did three endings. They were like, they're all great, aren't they? Yeah, it does feel like the. <laughs> I love that you said Lord of the Rings because it feels like when you're watching. Uh, I think Return of the King, whichever one's the last of the trilogy. Yeah. And you keep feeling like, I remember the first time I saw it in theater, I was like, every time it's like, it was an ending. Yeah. And then like, it would have to end every character, you know? So it's like, just fucking ending for an hour. Right. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, you know, but like in this case, you know, like even as the movie plays out or as this album plays out, it's like, it's a good, it's kind of a good feeling to kind of have, Yeah. you know, like anyone would be happy to have one of those as their... Andy. Oh, easy. yeah, easily. They're all fantastic. Um, so I guess like with thinking of this record, and I know you kind of mentioned it a lot with like Kevin kind of teaching you, I guess like kind of teaching you how to play guitar. Um, how do you feel like this album influences your songwriting now or does it? Um, I mean, I definitely still think it influences my songwriting, uh, you know, in some kind of, you know, subconscious way. Uh, it's just when you, when you learn a language, like, you know, if you like playing guitar or whatever, you learn a thing, whatever it is. And at that same time, you're also kind of, uh, like super in on this one artist. Um, 
it's there's chords that I'll hit on the guitar where I'm like, oh yeah, that's the that's the third eye blind chord from this song, or you know, little things like that. Um, you know, so, so much time's kind of passed since then that you know I'm sure a lot of different things have kind of come and gone uh, that have also influenced me. But with third eye blind kind of being around for the formative a uh, little era of, you know, learning how to play the guitar. It's definitely, it's, it's gotta be in there. You know, I, um, with my project that I sing, you know, and write, write songs for Invader Houses, um, it's very guitar driven, like a, any other, uh, band that I've kind of started or fronted. Um, and you know, that kind of ethos that I was talking about with, with, with Kevin Cadigan's thing, like he actually, his guitar teacher was Joe Satriani. So, oh, wow. and Joe Satriani's whole guitar school thing is like, whenever possible, hit all the strings on the guitar. If you're strumming chords or whatever, be hitting all the strings on the guitar cause they're there and it sounds better when you hit all the strings. So do it. Um, which is kind of like the opposite of the like punk rock, like play power chords kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like the opposite of that line of thinking. Um, so I don't really subscribe one way or the other. Again, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm like, I see the beauty in both things. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so when I'm, you know, if, if when I'm strumming chords, sometimes if I can get more, you know, notes, make it sound a little more lush, then I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And I think that, you know, uh, learning these kind of crazy chords when I was first learning guitar, uh, I'm sure has played a big kind of role through the years for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting coming from Joe Satriani. Uh, I mean, as a guitarist, <laughs> I feel like he could probably do like everything, you know, yeah. like, uh, but just like, there's kind of a version of him in my head that kind of isn't necessarily that guy, you know, but like, right. I don't know, you know, why he wouldn't be. I mean, I, I think it's like, it feels like almost like if your guitar teacher was like into like old country music, that would be something they would tell you, you know, like right. it's like just kind of let it do the work for you, mm -hmm. you know, like ring out the chord and kind of let everything else kind of walk around it, you know? Right. Right. Um, and that does that when I think of Joe Satriani in my head, I, I would, I would think that his teaching would be like, play as many notes as you can. Oh, right. Right. You know? <laughs> you know? But I'm like, Oh, maybe I need to revisit Joe Satriani as a guitar teacher. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not too familiar with him, but like, I, I do know that thinking of like third eye blind solos, they, my own, my only kind of thing with, if I'm like ever, you know, doing a guitar solo, my only ever like kind of self-imposed rule is that it's gotta be something that you could sing out like physically with your, you know, you could sing with your voice. Um, because I, I'm just not into like shred kind of guitar. And I think, uh, as, as far as like third eye blind guitar, shit you know goes they they had they definitely get into like you know the kind of like the, the a little bit of like cock rock and like shredding you know but most of their like if you think of the solo from jumper or um uh what's the song um i feel you uh the solo from the background do 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 these are all just like little sing-song melodies that are gorgeous that's kind of my that that has kind of stuck with me over the years is if I'm doing a guitar solo, it's just something that you somebody could uh, feasibly just sing into a mic rather than a guitar player playing it. Yeah. When I think of them, though, I don't you know, it's like I, I can hear all these guitar parts, but 
what's interesting and i guess to their credit is i don't really think of them as a shreddy band no you know like everyone is like playing their ass off in their own way but like it feels like it's like for to serve the song oh for sure you know like it's like there's plenty of examples where it's like it feels almost like the song kind of stops and then someone throws in a solo and then you're like and now back to the song right you know it's like even like bands i love like dinosaur jr like that's a lot of what they do but it's you know it's like it does feel like sometimes when these solos become like fixtures in the song i don't even kind of think of them as existing in the way that you would like uh, you know, the kind of normal cock rock band that would just be like, now Poison is doing a solo. Yeah. You know? And, you know, so so to their credit, I would say that that's interesting. And also in the same way, I've had people, you know, talk to me about like, oh, how big of an influence like the drummer was. You know, I assume they're talking about Brad Hargraves. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't, in my head, I don't think of them as like a drummer band, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think uh, you know, no no disrespect to Mr. Hargraves, but yeah, I don't I, I think he's a, a phenomenal drummer, but I don't think he's like, you know, um essential to the like formula, I guess. Um whereas especially the two the the two of them, the Kevin and the Steven, but then also the bass player, their old mm-hmm. bass player I should say Orion Salazar if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Uh that he he definitely added something to those songs that I don't think just any bass player could. Uh yeah, on on the drum side of things, yeah, maybe not as much. Yeah, but also even with uh you know Salazar as a bass player, like it doesn't you know it feels tasteful is the point i'm making like it's like nothing pulls me out where it's like you know it's like when you're listening to primus you're doing that for the purpose you know for sure of the of the bass you know it's like i'm not you know it's like you can be distracted by flea mm-hmm. you know with red hot chili peppers but it's like i'm i i don't i can't think of parts in this album where i'm like man that you know it's like if you really if you really like pay attention you're like that dude is ripping but I never feel like it feels outside of the song. For sure. You know, with this with this whole album. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like thinking about like songwriting kind of leads me to just think about your project Invader Houses. So recently you played, I guess, what was kind of billed locally as, well, I heard some people call it your last show. You know, so I guess if you wanted to kind of like talk about that more, because I know like you were saying, you're recording more music you're still doing invader houses so like what does that look to you well i um yeah we recently recently did our last show for the foreseeable future is kind of how i put it um and that's just mostly because i haven't written any songs recently um and that's kind of always how it's been how it's gone for me as far as like uh, phases where I write songs and phases of my life where I don't. I've, you know, in the past gone a couple of years where I don't even pick up a guitar, uh, which is crazy for me to think about now. But just recently, I've just been kind of like I've become a lot more of a student of music again. I'm like trying to learn some new styles on guitar. And one thing that has just not really, I guess, done it for me is writing new songs. And I don't I can't really quite completely like put my finger on why that is. It's just, I'm just like letting it happen that way. And I'm sure that one day I'll wake up and I'll want to write a song or write a handful of songs and that will probably happen. But in the meantime, I don't want to just keep playing shows with the same, you know, rotation of songs without kind of adding anything new. Um, But on the 
on the flip side, though, I do have like a bunch of songs on my computer that I've recorded uh, that most of which I recorded like over a year ago that are kind of in various stages of being done. Some of them are just like a little, you know, a, a 10 second guitar recording, but some of them are like completely like almost mixed and they just need to be kind of like, you know, mastered finishing touches type thing. So um, I think soon I'll probably start working with some of those songs and try to get towards putting those out on some kind of release. But in the meantime, it just doesn't make sense for me to uh, do shows right now with the same set list. And that was kind of with Invader Houses when I started playing shows, it was kind of already the plan to just do maybe a year's worth of shows and then hang it up for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about that kind of idea. I mean, I've been wrestling with it, I guess, like the idea of like getting, you know, to our ages and like still playing music. Like it's, it's, it's a tough position, but I also like try not to get too in my head about it, though I am, um, because I feel like sometimes like I've met people that are like, I decided to stop playing music. And then I feel like that's all they bring up to me. And then I'm like, yeah, you know, it's almost like if somebody that's also it's like weird. if somebody it's like if someone broke up with an ex and they're like, I'm totally over it. But every time you're around them, they mention that. Yeah. Ex, and it's like you're not over this. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and but I, I think it's it's a smart decision, you know, uh, that you're making with like because I, I hate that feeling of like you're like you go to practice and you're like, I just have to like get the set ready. And I understand that has to be the thing all the time. But if you kind of feel like you have to keep mm-hmm. doing that and nothing's kind of moving the needle forward, whatever that needle forward is yeah. in any sort of project, it kind of sucks. Yeah. You know, you, you know and it, yeah. You have to find a lot of like little things that you love about writing and playing and recording music that are completely separate from what your expectations of their reception might be. Every time, every time I've put out any kind of release, um, I always think to myself after it's been out for a couple of weeks, I don't know what I was expecting to happen off of this, but I know that it, that whatever it was that I might have wanted didn't happen. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like a you know, it's a little sad sack kind of thing to think about, but. The good thing is that, you know, I enjoy recording music. I like playing it so I can kind of separate it from that. Because if I was way too hinged on what people thought or how many streams it got or how many people came out to the shows or if we were able to sell out, you know, Snug Harbor, if I was only thinking on those terms, then, yeah, it would be it would not be fun <laughs> um yeah, but yeah. because you know uh that, that i mean that's a that's a thing like we're privileged to be able to have this hobby and to spend money on it cuz i mean i'm not fucking making money on it know that but to be able to spend money on this hobby and uh go out there and do it and um you know all that kind of thing it's a privilege uh but there is the other side of it where it can be like mad just disappointing and like you know uh, when when you see people kind of running circles running laps around you it's like god damn am i any good at this but you have yeah. to like you can't th- you can't get bogged down with that shit because that's that's a that's a tough road you have to just be like i like doing this that's all that matters yeah, and I've tried to get there. It, it kind of comes and goes. Yeah, <laughs> with that, you know, it's it's like I think I thought about something today where I was like, "There's so many artists that I've played with, 
that are like to the degree of like we like label them are open for artists that are playing on like tonight show type things. Yeah, yeah. And like and it's like it gets kind of weird, but also I I didn't get into it really expecting anything. When I played with those bands, I was like, Yeah, I'll book you at this restaurant. You yeah. know, now they're playing tonight show. So it's like when I think about that other thing, it was wasn't like oh, I deserve to be on a Tonight Show or right. something, you know? And that was never, like, the thing yeah. with it. But it is kind of like you're like, wait, I think I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, if you think about it in the context, on the Tonight yeah. Show and then they're, like, looking at their streaming numbers the next day and they're like, what the fuck? Why did we only get 7,000 streams off of this Tonight Show performance? Like, they're just, they're probably, you know, <laughs> these people might, yeah. they, you just, you're, the bar moves, but you're still, like... <laughs> If you get too into the numbers, it's just going to damn you either way. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, and I think we've joked about this. It's like, you know, it's like even with Third Eye Blind, uh, it's like we would love to go on tour with Third Eye Blind. You know, <laughs> I said a lot of nice things about Steven. So if you're listening to this, like take me on tour. Uh, but, you know, the point being like, I feel like it's like if anyone can go on tour with them as the opening band, it's like take my band, you know, like just take us on tour. Like the point being like, it feel, it feels funny that sometimes we're like, Oh, the numbers don't matter. But then whenever I look at like bigger bands numbers, I'm like, well, I'd be, I'd be happy at that. And also the point being, I think sometimes you, you aren't. Maybe <laughs> it's not, like you, when you yeah. get to that, whatever that number is, you know, cause I, I've had situations where I told someone about like a bad time on tour and then they kind of mentioned like they were trying to just relate with me and they were telling me a situation and they tore on a bus. And then the, basically the story ended was like, and then I cried into my Taco Bell. Sure. And then I was like, it never ends. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you're touring on a bus and you're still like relating to me on this thing where it's like, you know, it, it's interesting. Yeah. So if you don't kind of find what, kind of works for you and the kind of reason you're doing it sure you can get really lost in all those little points when i was yeah. like listening to the third eye blind record when i was 11 years old and i was playing air guitar to the songs what i envisioned in front of me was just like a crowd of like maybe 20 or less people of people <laughs> that like my family and friends and that to me was like the ultimate the, that was like the pinnacle of my fantasies while air guitaring to records like the Third Eye Blind record. So, you know, uh, I think about that often, you know, it, it's like I've kind of in a way I've achieved my childhood dreams, which is hilarious, uh, but also kind of amazing. Yeah, I try and r remind myself of that a lot because it's like I remember like the first kind of real band that i was in i was like if we burn a cd and bring it to a show <laughs> then you know that we've it. uh yeah we're, we've you know, stepped it like, up. we can pass those out for free but that was like if because basically it was like if we record a song was like the goal and then it was like and then if we pass it out <laughs> yeah and then kind of like it's just being like then i remember being like you didn't bring the burn cds to the show like to the other guy in the band and just being like, but that was the goal was just to bring a burn CD to the show. <laughs> yeah. So when I think about like, you know, and then, so it's interesting to kind of like look back at like accomplishments, kind of goalposts, kind of things. It's like, if you were like on the cover of like your alt weekly or something, it's like, it is helpful to just remember those things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there are tons of people, like you were saying, like, this is a privilege that 
don't even know how to get either to that step or they don't know how to get to the step of like playing in front of their family, you know? Right. And so when I think about like everything, it's like, like, shut the fuck up. Like, I, that's what I tell myself, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, you know, but we didn't, we also didn't get that pile of money, like third eye blind. Yeah. So. Right, right, right. So. They, they got the, they, they were able to just be unhappy right from the jump with, you know. <laughs> that's what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I guess for I truly let you go, I had little notes and I didn't mention them, so I'll just kind of read them real quick. Um, so I, I did notice that this album got 8.3 out of 10 on Pitchfork, which I think would have been a review after the fact. Yeah, I think you know, I'm guessing. I just like I don't even want to look it up because I assume because one, it was 97, yeah, and that feels a little early, and I know I know they were probably around around that time. But they but were just doing like yeah. dorm room neutral milk hotel reviews at that point, probably. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't really feel like this would have been something they hit. So I'm like, I, I think this is also kind of the conversation at the beginning of like that kind of like recontextualizing this album, I think is what that is. Because I feel like if this had been at a time frame that Pitchfork was reviewing this, this would have gotten a two. Yes. Oh, hundred like, because of how they were at that time frame. It, and the yeah. re- it would have been like the most snarky ass like review. <laughs> uh, like it would have been an eBay listing for the album. Like, can somebody buy this for me? Cause it sucks. <laughs> it's kind of a review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they, I mean, it's like when I think back on, if it were that, then I'm like, that is art. But a yeah. lot of times it's like for every time you get something that's that, then you just get something that's like, there's so many that are like, I didn't know a girl could do this. And it's like, <laughs> were we really doing that in like 2000? And yes, we were. Um, you know, but also too, like around the time frame this record came out, the other note I had, they went on the MTV Campus Invasion Tour. Mm-hmm. And that was with Eve Six. And also the strength of this album, they were the opening act for Rolling Stones and U2. Yes. So to give a context of like, I mean, six times platinum, I don't think I need to explain it anymore. Sure. But that it's just wild to think, like, your first album, you get to open for Rolling Stones. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That is, is crazy. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, I think they were my first concert also, by the way. I, they, it wasn't U2 or Rolling Stones, but they were the, head, the headlining band with, uh, they had Vertical Horizon and Nine Days were their openers. And, oh, I thought for a second, I thought you were going to say it was like the other, like they were the opening band for it because there is this weird thing where I'm like, yeah, cause one thing I was reading is like, this was what they considered like a sleeper hit. I mean, I think mainly because this was their first album, no one really expects anything, Yeah, you know? So it's like, there could have been a situation where this album was blowing up, but they were already supposed to go on tour with Vertical Horizon <laughs> and right. they, you know, but that's. <laughs> historically i guess that you know that makes sense that those were the openers you know um but yeah it could have been the other way easily i feel like yeah, yeah. the tour i saw them on was off of the blue out the the second album so they yeah they were huge at that point oh, okay nine okay. The um, nine days covered semi-charm life at that show which was also great well i can't imagine <laughs> like but okay so in that instance Third Eye Blind would have also played it. Oh, they definitely did. Yeah, the Nine Days that was just such like we're gonna play this mood. song. I hope it's cool that we do it. We just like it. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, I don't. I to this day, it's it's confounding. But I mean, Nine Days only had that one song. I'm pretty sure. So they had to, they had to do something else. I guess. I remember uh, one time on tour uh, when I, 
the band I was in at the time, Obstruction, I like just fast punk band. Um, we we did a cover of this band called SSD, um, and the song's Boiling Point. And uh, they played before us, and they covered Boiling Point. So we were like, Ooh. what do we do? And then uh, we were like, let's just let that singer sing on it instead of me. Okay. Uh, let's just let him do it. But we, our version of Boiling Point was probably closer to like the recorded version and that it was probably five times faster than they did. Uh-huh. Because we were like, let's just kind of make this dude like sing it too fast <laughs> for him, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, outside of that, you know, and now I'm like, man, that really does make me sound like a dickhead that we just like played it too fast. But like the point being like, I can't imagine having the balls <laughs> to, cause in one way it's funny, but in this way you're telling me, it doesn't sound like they did it in any sort of irony or thing. Like it was just earnest. No, I mean, nine, nine days was, uh, you know, this is the story of a girl. They don't have, they're not like, you know, it's fucking funny. We're at torn with third eye blind but fuck them we're cool no they were just like they were even they were like third eye blinds cheesiness amped up to 50 so them covering semi-charmed life is just like please please think we're cool (laughs) that's my only (laughs) explanation is like how can we win over these third eye blind fans it would be great though if it were like some sort of like hey we're gonna cover you know even if there's like a big earnestness to it Mm -hmm. where it's almost like a tour in joke that they're gonna do it you know like it's just like i don't give a shit if you do it. maybe stephen jenkins like hazed nine days into being like if you're gonna tour with us you've got to cover semi-charm life every show (laughs) and um just you know see what happens to you (laughs) like that's the stipulation man if you want to tour with us (laughs) <laughs> oh man in in instances like that i know we just like created that scenario but i'm like i think i want to hang out with stephen jenkins i would love to i mean i don't you know i truly think for all of his you know villainry or whatever perceived or real or otherwise um he is genuinely like when you hear him talk and the way that he talks and the way that he like you know he has the sentence ready to go and he's going to say the sentence. He already ha- knows what he's going to say, but the way he delivers it, he's like, um, you know, I think, I think it's true. And you're just like, but he already, he already knew what he was going to say, but he's just got this way about him that's just like makes people kind of zero. And he's like, I know I have something cool to say and I have got a provocative and uh, intelligent way to say it and you're going to listen, but I'm going to make you wait for it a little bit and I'm going to click my, you know, uh, click my tongue. And uh, truly, I love him for it. Genuinely, I I seek out interviews with him. Um, there, there's, I think it's gone kind of a little too far on certain occasions. Like there's a, there's a great story that John Vanderslice, uh, wrote for, um, I don't, you know, if you search John Vanderslice third eye blind, you'll, you'll get what you need. It's a story of third eye blind recording at John Vanderslice's studio, or I guess they never actually did record, but they met him at the studio to see if they wanted to record there. And it's just the story of that meeting. And it is so bonkers and you know that it's 100 percent true it's not like embellished and it's just these are the way it's like some white lotus type of you know are are these is this the way that people treat other people type of thing but i from like you know like the he's kind of got that like 
like I'm sure a lot of his idols growing up were other like white fucking rich rock stars like Lou Reed um, and or whoever else that that kind of like can play the antagonist. I think that's what he likes to do too. And I, you know, I'm here for it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to be, but it's it's also interesting because I think about it like I don't know. I always think about it with like action stars. It's like at what point do they just kind of think they're that person? Because that happens to all of them. And we're talking about it with Stephen Jenkins, but it's like at some point Stephen Seagal, probably pretty early, um, just was like, "I am the guy that I play in this thing." You right, know? right. And they just like you know, it's like you feel like it's like when you think of even like Sylvester Stallone, it's like he's a guy that wrote the first Rocky movie. Right. And it is like a pretty emotional movie. It's like hard to remember it that way, but it's like, it's not what it became. Right. And he wrote that shit. Oh yeah. You know? And it's like, there is a point where he stopped being Sylvester Stallone and just became, you know, what, you know, he became like the action star. For sure. And that's like a thing that I think what happens to like rock dudes, you know, it's like, there's stories of like Lou Reed, like calling people and yelling at them, you know, it's like, but people just like kind of tell them that's okay you know and they just like tell them they it's hard to think of an idea where it's like i would maybe also become a monster if everyone was just telling me what i did was the right thing you know and it's like that sounds kind of fucked up because if you plug it into like really fucked up things it's you know but it's like with a guy like stephen jenkins if you had like all these people in your ear telling you that you're making the right decision yeah you're just like i made the right decision and then like all these years later then we're like, you know, Stephen Jenkins or fucking Van Damme or whoever, you know, it's like, you know, they just kind of had become that guy. But you don't do that like overnight. It's such an interesting thing. Like, you know. Yeah. But also it's like a personality type that like I think these people are built to be the best version of like the front man, you know, like that guy that's going to lead the thing. If we're talking about movies, if we're talking about music. um that's a personality type right that, that i guess we we both of us don't have you know but like when you meet that person you're like you're affixed to every word they they say right you know? and uh, and yeah with a bit you know when it when this when a band or your songs or whatever your art becomes something that you do every day and you don't necessarily the line is blurred as to when you're turning it on and off um, like if you have to be third, like that guy probably had to be third eye blind, like 200 days out of the year, at least, uh, or if not more. Um, and it makes me think, you know, like, wasn't Lana Del Rey playing a character on ultra violence? Like she probably had to be that character for X amount of months. And so like to, how much t- has that influenced her overall personality? It's kind of weird to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Like with us, it's like, if we have kind of a, uh, outside of our normal way of thinking kind of viewpoint, probably our, our wives would be like, I don't know. That's a stupid opinion. Uh, I don't think you should go around saying that, (laughs) you know, that's what happens to them. You know, it's probably nicer than that, but like, you know, I feel like my wife would be like, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. You know? And then, but like if, if essentially like uh, any of our loved ones would just be like, no, Phil, you're right. (laughs) Uh, They just become another one of the yes, the yes men around you that are just like, Oh yeah. uh Yeah. And I know it's like, it can get bigger and bigger and you can think about like Elon or you can think about Kanye, but you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, I've made the point, (laughs) but you know, like it, it just be kind of come becomes that that's such an interesting thing, but it's like, but you can't say you wouldn't want to like 
spend time with this person because that seems captivating. And also I would, it's like you would go out with them and it might kill you, but the process there, especially if we're talking about him, like during this era, not really like now, right? you know, and that's an interesting conversation that I know we don't really have the time to go down, but I'm like thinking about somebody kind of like if they became, had all these yes men's that made them into this character, Mm -hmm. but then looking what 20 third almost you know 20 some years after the fact like how that person wrestles with the character and if that character's there you know like i think about too like it's like you know andrew dice clay uh, when when he was on top of the world versus now right you know and it it sounds like a silly comparison but it's like you know it's like they became that person and then eventually it's like you know, cause I sent you a video of Steven Jenkins where he's just like playing in a studio and it's like, it's not the Steven Jenkins we're really talking about. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah, but you know, I've kept you so long. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this has been amazing to kind of recontextualize this. So yeah, dude. I super appreciate it. Absolutely. Third Eye Blind forever. Welcome back. Thanks again to Phil for coming on the pod. Stay tuned for new Invader House's songs in the near future and check out their back catalog on streaming. Do yourself a favor too and check out Modern Moxie, Pullover, and Surfs. Honestly, any music Phil touches is always good. Quick note, Phil is a guitar teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, so if you're looking to pick up the guitar or just brush up on lessons, check him out. He also teaches on Zoom, so even if you don't live in town, he can still help you out. Go to at iteachguitar underscore on Instagram and message him or email him at philpucci at gmail.com. That's P-H-I-L-P-U-C-C-I at gmail.com. Take it from me. I've only been a student of his for a few months, and I've already progressed so much. Okay, next time we're talking with Kaylee Goldsworthy about the band Hole. More on that next week. Check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash pod. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and reviews always help. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>